did it, except row two didn't. Whatever, row two. And so she said this. Row three, thank you so much for passing the paper up so quickly. And that row two just went boom and started passing the paper up. And I asked her about it. She said, you know, little kids, they want praise. They, they need that praise. And when you praise anybody, they're going to kind of compete for it. They want it too. Now, this is in contrast to 20 years later, I was in the inner city, and it was a sister, a, a nun, who was uh, teaching. And they had their first grade class right down by the rectory, and the rest of the school was on the other side. And um, she had, I'm, I can't remember exactly how many ways, but the other priest who was with me said he counted 47 ways of her saying, excuse me, same grade level. And she'd ask him to do something, and then you'd hear this, not a shout, but a shout, excuse me, and then the next time would be, excuse me, and it would be, excuse me, and she just had all these multiple ways of saying it. And so I in my head was contrasting these two ways. And I have my own conviction that the first explanation was correct. And I think that everybody loves praise. I think when we get older, we don't need it so much, although I think we need it or want it from the people that we love the most and that love us. Like, I think spouses enjoy being praised by their spouse. And I think as an adult, we enjoy being praised by our parents, but we don't need it in the same way, I think, that a little child does. But I also know a priest who has a friend who is in his 80s, who needs praise all the time. And if you don't praise him, he'll say, well, didn't I do a good job? In his 80s, he's saying this. Well, don't you think I did it right? Don't you think it was good what I did? And if he doesn't get that praise, he's just almost shaky. And the explanation that my priest friend who knows this friend says, his father used to say to him every single day, you'll never run out to nothing. You're an idiot. And he was raised on that language. Day after day after day after day. And if you don't think, we don't think that makes a difference, I, I really think it does. And as that child, now in his 80s, as that child's self-respect and self-love was broken and smashed, he, he heard it constantly from the one that he trusted the most. And his inner spirit was destroyed. Well. We do something daily. When I was in grammar school, I was in St. Charles in North Hollywood, and we had the same, the BBM sisters that were here, over there. So we did this out on the schoolyard before we went into the class. We did it at the beginning of the day. We did it at the end of the day. We did it before every class, before math and after math. We did it before reading and after reading. A different nun or, or teacher would come in. We did it before. Uh, social studies and after social studies, and it was this. Anybody know what it's going to be, what I'm going to tell you? This. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I would propose to you, there's nothing we do more in our faith than make and say the sign of the cross. We mark our bodies with the cross, and we name the Trinity. And when I was in school, at least... 20 times a day, 
at least for at least eight years. When I went to the seminary, uh, 20 times a day at least. So how many hundreds of thousands of times have we crossed ourselves, our body, with the cross of Christ and named the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And I ask you, what do you think that did to us or does to us? Well, I don't know. I think that it makes us unquestioning in a belief and trust and, and, well, a belief in the cross of Christ and in the Trinity. We don't even question it. And yet, this is the Sunday I, I won't say I hate most because that's pretty pejorative, but it is the hardest Sunday to preach. What do you say about the Trinity? For God's sake, what am I going to teach you? Or what do I even know? Listen to this phrase that's in the, uh, in the preface today. Um, I'll just read the short one, but listen to this explanation of the Trinity. This is a kind of a, not a definition, but if we were to describe what is the Trinity, this is what it says. It says, oh my God, I've lost it already. Huh? Okay. For with your only begotten Son and the Holy Spirit, you are one God, one Lord not in the unity of a single person, but in a trinity of one substance. That's a very brief description. And it says, basically, the trinity is one substance, it'll say in other places, one God. There's not three gods. One God, but three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It's a contradiction to me. And I'm not aware of any other religion that has that kind of a concept. There may be, and if somebody knows it, tell me after Mass. But not only that, I'm surprised, shocked, amazed that this developed out of the first century of the church because uh, so much opposition to it by the Jews who believed there was only one God. That was the one distinct thing that was so true for the Jews. There's only one God. And there were many, many other gods, small g, the, the Baal gods. They had altars all over the mountains. Even down in Mexico, I remember going to see the pyramids of Teotihuacan, and there was a, a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the stars, a god of the corn, a god of the fish. And depending on what kind of commerce is going on out at the sea, they, they praised the gods of, of the fish and sea. And if it was a place where there were agricultural, they praised the god of corn or tequila. The, 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 yeah. So uh, whatever it was, they had gods for everything. But the Jews said, no, there's only one god, the god of Abraham. And then Jesus comes along and says, this is my father, and he and I are one, and we're equal. The father lives in me. I live in the father. I will send you my spirit. And this language must have just drove them crazy. In fact, in many places of scriptures, it says that's the reason for that. The accusation was two things. You claim to be equal to God, or to be the Son of God, and you also claim that uh, the temple could be destroyed in three days, you would raise it up. And of course, the gospel says he was referring to his own body, his own temple. But in any case, this concept developed. Well, I heard a description of it that was most meaningful to me 
And it's not that it was completely new, but it got phrased in a way that I said, ah, uh, yes, of course. Uh, I've said this before here, but it's the best description I can give to the Trinity. Uh, the pastor in my third parish, I was about, uh, oh, 10 years ordained, and he asked me one uh, year, he said, for Advent, I'd like you to give uh, or provide a retreat for our lectors and Eucharistic ministers. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, you decide. Okay. So um, I called one of the bishops, one of the uh, auxiliary bishops, and I, he was a good teacher, and I asked him if he could come and give a retreat and to motivate our lectors and Eucharistic ministers. He said, sure. So he came and and they greeted everybody, shook their hands, and everybody was all pleased. And he was very warm and very kind and welcoming. And then he said this. They're all seated in the circle. He says, how many of you pray to God? And they all looked at him. They all raised their hands. He says, well, please don't do it anymore. And they were stunned. And somebody said, excuse me, Bishop? He said, please don't pray to God anymore. And they said, why would you say that? He said, well, because you don't just pray to God in general. You pray to God our Father, God the Son, Redeemer, God the Holy Spirit, Sanctifier. There's one God, but there are three distinct persons. And as the preface will say, they were equal in majesty. What we know is that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Jesus Christ didn't create the world, according to the Scriptures. It's the Father, who is Father and Creator. And the Father didn't die on the cross. That's Jesus the Son. And the gift of the Spirit is not Jesus. He gave the gift of the Spirit. And so he implored us from our side, because, again, I can state the Trinity is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, to me, it's basically a mystery. It's a mystery to be beheld and to relate to. But he said, from our side, to relate to Father Creator, Son Redeemer, and Spirit Sanctifier, we see the distinct gifts that each person of the Trinity desires to give to us and how we can be enriched by the gift of God through the Trinity. I think that, um, for me, another way to get at Trinity is that to me, it's the perfect triangle of love. Um, and in John's gospel in particular, where he speaks about the Father lives in me, I live in the Father, uh, so that you may live in me and I may live in you, and it's all this intimate language about uh, intermingling at the deepest part of our spirit that God wishes to dwell in us. And when I look at the Trinity, I think it's, it's a communion of perfect love, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we can't separate them, and yet we separate them. And it's one, but it's three in one, and, and it's kind of elusive. But you know, when I look at it as a communion of perfect love, I think to myself, that gets verified in two ways. First of all, in the letter of John, uh, way at the end of the Scriptures, it's the only place I can think of where the Scriptures attempt a, a kind of a definition of God when John says God is love. He doesn't say he loves, he says he is love. And then he goes on and says, he or she who lives in love lives in God and God in him or her. And then he wraps it all up with this phrase, wherever there is love, 
there is God. And so I think to myself, if the Father, Son, and Spirit are in this communion of love and they're giving the gift of each other to us all the time, when we relate to them, if we experience it in terms of love, it makes a lot more sense because love itself, uh, it's definable, but actually I, I don't think we really define it very well. Most people talk of love as an emotion. I love this, I love that, I love this person. I know this person loves me. But then you say, what is love? And can you love someone who hates you? Yeah, that's what Jesus said. You've heard it said, love your countrymen, but hate your enemy. But what I tell you, Jesus said, is love your enemy. Pray for those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. And why would we do that? I was watching on a kind of a binge. I finished that soccer series on uh, Ted Lasso. Oh, my God. Ted Lasso, wow, what a show. And in this scene, the Nigerian community, through one man on the team, Sam, had built this Nigerian restaurant in England. It was beautiful and lovely and all. And the um, um, person that runs the country, the prime minister woman, um, was denigrating immigrants kind of like today. And um, so Sam decides to text her back and forth. And in this great scene, um, she says something really horrific about immigrants and says, says to him, what do you know? You're just a dribbler, a dribbler. So in this scene, he comes to the restaurant and it has been demolished. And on the wall, it says something disgusting about, against all dribblers. And everything is broken and smashed. And just then, the father of Sam, who was Nigerian, comes from Nigeria for a visit. And he had, on that day, intended to have a big dinner at his restaurant, his new restaurant for his father. He's seething. He's seething inside with anger and hate at what has happened to him. And he says, I want to destroy them or something like that. And the father says, no, son. You must forgive him. And he says, forgive him? Why would I forgive him? He says, because that'll hurt him worse. <laughs> forgive him. And stop and think about it. Think of Jesus on the cross. I said this last week. If you were in that crowd, in front of that cross, saying, crucify him, I hate you, I hate you, go to wherever, and just shouting all this stuff and spitting on Jesus, and then you hear him say these words, Father, forgive them all. They know not what they do. What would you feel? Well, maybe the hint is in the scripture today in the gospel that I read. And there's two things I want to emphasize equally. The first is, after it states that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. And he says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. 
And I challenge you, every one of you, to believe that. Because I don't believe most Catholics believe that. I believe most Catholics spend their life trying to please God, trying to prove that they love God, and every time they sin, they feel bad, and then they think God's upset with them, and then they have to go to confession because they have to confess it. If they don't, God will keep, stop loving them. And Really? Not what, it's not what the gospel says here. But it does go on and say this, whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what might that mean? Does that mean condemned to hell? I don't think so. I don't think so. But like Sam in that little scene, he wanted to hate. He wanted revenge. He wanted to dislodge and dislocate those people who had done it from his life and destroy him if he could. And his father said what Jesus would have said, forgive them. Forgive them. Because there's nothing more redemptive, it seems to me, than to be able to choose love when hate is readily more available. And we're all in that position all the time. Every single day we get a choice to love or to hate. And maybe hate's a strong word, but to love and not love. And if we choose love, we've already been redeemed. To, to be able to walk in those shoes, I love no matter what. Nobody can make me not love. Nobody. Hate me all you want, but you can't make me hate. That's my choice. And to be condemned like Sam was right on the precipice of choosing to hate and want revenge, maybe one, for how long? The rest of his life? Maybe. That's condemnation. And most condemnation comes from ourself to ourself and for ourself. But Jesus gives another option. So today, as we celebrate the Trinity, it seems to me we've got to seize what we can from each person of the Trinity, and however that is that there are three distinct, equal persons in majesty, but one God? I don't know. But Father Creator is the one I thank first every day when I get up. Grateful that I'm alive. Grateful that I'm not sleeping by the river. Um, grateful that I had a meal last night. Grateful that I have family. Grateful for this parish. So every day, the first one I speak to is God who created it all and However, that mystery evolved over millions of years. I'm a part of it, and that's wonderful. And I thank my Redeemer, the Son of God, who showed me on the cross the power of love no matter what. No matter what. And I thank the sanctifier because this is the one I didn't know how to go to as a kid, but I learned it over the years. And I appreciate that this is constant. There's, there's, I don't think there's a minute when I'm not being blessed and graced. Whether I recognize it or open to it or welcome it is another question. But that it's happening all the time, I believe it, even when I'm not aware. And today we celebrate this solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, because each one has something so special to give us. And all, asks, all it asks is that we be willing to receive.